Welcome to The Network, our attempt at creating a modern podcast version of the Negro Motorist Green Book. If you don't know anything about the Green Book, I invite you to Google it. With each interview, we are building a network of talented professionals that you can reach out and touch. Every episode is an invaluable resource for black people living in and traveling through America. Subscribe to The Network. You may need it. Today, on Episode 7, I am honored to have my homegirl, Associate Professor and History Department Chair at Xavier University of Louisiana, Dr. Charlene Senegal DeQueer. Her list of accomplishments is long and includes numerous publications, an op-ed in the New York Times, as well as an appearance on MSNBC with the good Reverend Al Sharpton. Recently, she was appointed as a board member to the Louisiana Supreme Court History Society, and she was also nominated to serve on the U.S. Civil Rights Cold Case Commission Review Board. Now, here's our interview with Dr. Charlene Senegal DeQueer. Today's guest is Dr. Charlene Senegal DeQueer. Welcome, Doctor. Hi, thank you for having me, Mike. Um, listen, the pleasure is all mine. Um, it's great to talk to somebody that I know that is as accomplished as you are. So give us a little bit of background. Tell us about yourself. All right, so I am originally from Lafayette, Louisiana, and those of you guys who are listening, you will know this neighborhood is Wine Alley, so that is where I'm from. It's a little neighborhood. I don't even know how it got its name, Wine Alley. I think it was way before my time, maybe the winos in the neighborhood, who knows? But anyways, I'm from that little small area, um, and it's, it's a really interesting little place. A lot of us came out of that little ghetto area as I would say but we are all doing extremely well and it's it's quite amazing it's a testimony to the neighborhood because even though it was a poor neighborhood you know we look back and see that it was poor it had so much love and the community was there and they made sure that we did what we had to do we were out past a certain time and our parents didn't know where where we were well actually our parents always knew where we were because the neighbors were always telling and uh, and and that's what made the this little community Community, this little neighborhood so amazing and I think everyone who who left out of that neighborhood because of the love and the community we all are doing very well how did you end up at Xavier coming out uh, oh of my wine alley oh my so that's a story uh, <laughs> actually I would say um, and, and I, I'm gonna kind of re- just go back a little bit back to the family and my parents and how strict they were. My parents were extremely, extremely strict on me, my three sisters. And uh, they actually picked our friends and we could only play with certain people. We could get involved with school activities, but we couldn't go to the dances like we couldn't do. We had to ask permission for a lot of stuff. So they were extremely strict on us. And they told us that our job was to go to school and excel in school. So we did not have a choice. Um, After we finished high school, we knew we were going to college. Um, Again, that was not a choice. And I ended up at Xavier because I followed my older sister, Demetria. Demetria was two years ahead of me and she was at Xavier in pre-med. So I just wanted to leave 
you know, laugh yet and get from under my parents' thumb. Actually, I wanted to just kind of spread my wings. So I said, I'm going to go and go to New Orleans and follow her. And that's what I did. So I ended up in New Orleans um, as a biology pre-med major. And yeah, that didn't work out very well at Xavier. I mean, let me tell you, when I first got there, I had to find out who Charlene was because I'd always been a pair. I have a twin sister, Shannon, and we were together all our lives. I mean, anyone who went to high school with us knows my mom and my mom dressed us alike until sophomore year when we begged her to one, take out our Jerry curl and to <laughs> to let us be individuals and dress differently. And so um, when I went to Xavier, I had to find out who Charlene was. And that was very difficult because um, I didn't have her to just lean on. And so I found that I was very shy. I was very timid. I was a church mouse in class. I didn't say anything. I mean, it was it was pretty difficult to find who I was. But then, you know, you're a freshman, you're in a, a new place and, you know, you're going to find your tribe. And I found my tribe. And once I found my tribe, I let my hair down and I went all the way crazy. I mean, I hung out in New Orleans my first year, my first semester freshman year. I partied so much that by second semester, I was done partying. I partied from Thursday to Sunday and um, I had a lot of fun. I had a ton of fun and my roommates, they knew the deal. It was if my parents called, they told my parents I was in the 24 hour study room. And so my parents were like, oh, you're always studying. Oh, my gosh, your grades are going to be great. Oh my, when they got the first progress report from Xavier, they actually got it uh, during sophomore year. And again, biology pre-med major, the letter came home and I'll never forget. It said, your daughter is wasting your money. She will never go to medical school with those grades. And my parents, I had a reckoning with them and it was not good. They about yanked my butt back home because they said Xavier was too expensive. They weren't paying for that. And uh, and then I changed my major to history because I was like, I never really wanted to be a medical doctor anyway. I was just doing it because my parents are not college educated. They only know um, lawyers, doctors, that's the people who make money. And so that's what, you know, that's the path I was going on. So I switched to history and then, you know, which was my passion and finished with a history degree. So for people who may not know, um, Xavier in New Orleans is America's only historically black and Catholic university. Um, pretty small school, pretty small school. The enrollment, I think I uh, looked it up, is about between 3,000 and 3,500 students? Yes, correct. Okay, 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 cool, so. And a large majority are biology pre-med major. Everyone goes in wanting to become a MD, a medical doctor. And you know, sometimes that's not the path that most of the students end with, I should say. And I was one okay. of them. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad that you found your passion, which is history. So walk us through finding your passion in history and how you ended up becoming Dr. DeQueer. Okay. Yeah. So, um, after sophomore year, I decided again, you know, I'm going to go ahead and major in history because that's, I loved history. So that's what I did. And my parents, you know, they gave me that tough love and they told me, they said, well, you could switch your major. You're a sophomore, but we're only giving you four years. So I don't know what you're going to do if, you run out of time because we're not paying for extra time. 
And so I um, ended up going to summer school and I went to school year round in order to finish in four years than I did. When I graduated from Xavier, I was kind of, I was at a crossword. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to go in the law. I'd taken the LSAT. Um, my LSAT scores were not the greatest. So then I had to reconsider again. And at the time I was dating Brandon DeQueer. I had started dating him when I was 19. So we had dated all through college. And um, I was talking to his parents and his mom suggested that I try you know, graduate school. She said, why don't you come to Baton Rouge? You can live with us. And I was like, live with y'all. Oh, my mom and dad and I gonna go for that at all. Uh, so they had some convincing to do. They had to convince my parents that her son and I were not going to be shacking up. Um, and so that's what they did. And I ended up moving in with them for two and a half years. I went to LSU, didn't take the GRE. I just, I went to the graduate school and I talked my way into graduate school. They let me in. And um, for the first year, I was not in a program, like in a history master's program or anything like that because I hadn't taken the GRE. Um, my grades after the first year was, they were a 4.0. It was a per perfect grade. So then I applied to the history department. I got in, um, in 2001, I got my master's. After I defended my master's thesis, the committee uh, chair came out and asked me if I wanted to continue on with my PhD. And they would also, you know, give me a teaching assistantship and kind of set me up. And I was like, uh, okay, because again, I had no plans on what I was going to do next. I was still kind of toying with, okay, maybe I'll just go to law school. But God, I tell you, he had my path set because I did not know what I was going to do. And I guess this, this is just what he wanted me to do. He wanted me to be there to teach these, you know, students and pass on knowledge. And because I, again, I had no clue. So I'm just blessed to be where I am. What was what was the subject of your master's thesis? So my master's thesis, it was on AP Turo. I don't know if you guys are familiar with AP Turo. He was the only practicing African-American civil rights attorney in the 1970s. And so that was my, my master's thesis. And then my PhD th dissertation was called Attacking Jim Crow, Black Activism in New Orleans from 1925 to 1941. So I looked at the depression years and um, studied how Blacks were coming up in terms of political power and also um, beginning the modern civil rights movement even before the modern civil rights movement. Because historians, a lot of time, they like to, to say that the modern civil rights movement starts with the Brown decision, but it's actually a lot um, it, it, it's a lot more before that that happened. It was the grassroots level that got to the Brown decision. So there's always a movement going on. And so though, that was pretty much the basis of that. But I was particularly looking at the New Orleans community and the different things that, that they did in order to advance and move on with civil rights prior to Brown decision. Okay, so I want to ask you a question. I'm going to kind of jump just a little bit. Um, when I was reading your questionnaire, one of the things that you mentioned was that America has not learned from its history. So in your opinion, in your professional opinion, what are some possible repercussions of America not learning from its history? 
Well, the biggest repercussion is that we're doomed to continue to to live in the same cycle that we're living in. Um, and the biggest thing right now is just the social injustice, the disparities that's going on in the African-American community with COVID, the fact that African-Americans are dying at largely alarming numbers. And, you know, it's due to it's due to the reasons that we are the people who are needed to make America work. Right. We are those the, those um, what are those called? The, those workers that ha- we have to go to work. Right. Um, some of us. And it's very difficult for us to not come into contact with that. So we're dying in larger numbers. That's a huge problem. And it stems from, again, the economic disparities that we have, the health disparities that we have, and the racial disparities that we have in this country. We have black men that are dying, that are being murdered by police. Police brutality has been around for ages. I mean, if you think back to the Black Power Movement and um, the Black Panthers, it was one of their 10-point platforms way back then to end police brutality. That has not ended from the late 60s and even prior. You still have African-American men and women dying at the hands of police. So I think those, those are the things that we need to analyze. We need to go back in history and look at. Another thing that we need to go back in history and look at is we need to teach our kids that they are strong that they are worthy that they are that they should be here that they should not question themselves or in any space any space that they're in even if it's a white space they belong we belong and um and that's what I do in in a lot of my classes that's why I love teaching at Xavier because I'm able to go in into the classrooms and teach my students things that they do not know. And a lot of times they come in and they say, oh, we know all about African-American history. We took slavery in high school and all that. And I said, no, when you leave my class, you're going to know a whole lot more and you're going to be able to discuss a whole lot more with anybody. And it's not just calling, you know, recalling these stories as facts. I'm giving you facts. You can go and argue these facts with anybody, right? Um, and, and, and that's the thing. That's what I'm sharing. No, that, that's good because I know, so I teach history at the high school level, you know, and the curriculum, it's, there are gaps, you know, there are gaps in the curriculum. So I, I completely understand kids getting to you you know, young people getting to you and not knowing the whole story, you know, not really not even having a clue as to what the whole story is. Because I look at um, here in the state of Texas, one of the things is when we look at our education commissioner here in the state of Texas, no, no educational background, you know, no educational background. That's one of the things Um, you can actually run the state board commission, you know, there, there are elected positions and you don't necessarily have to be somebody from the field of education to win one of those elected positions. And these are the people who develop the curriculums, you know, on the high school level in the state of Texas. Thank you for Huge sharing gaps. that, because when we look at what's going on uh, in the United States today, there are layers. There are multiple layers that we have to really understand. And yes. hopefully, hopefully like two fingers crossed, if I can cross my fingers and toes, hopefully soon America will start to learn from its history and not continue to repeat it. I hope so. I mean, that's the plan. And and when you say these students come in with gaps, they come in with huge gaps. I mean, they really don't know anything about the black experience in America. They get American history, but 
uh, black history is covered for a couple weeks in high school, maybe. I mean, it's like glossed over. And yeah. when I start telling them about all of the stuff and giving them books to read and opening their eyes, they are like, oh, my gosh. And, you know, they think they know the story of slavery. But when I break it down to them, they're like, oh, my goodness. They, they just don't understand, you know, the things that we went through. And I always in all of my classes, I encourage the students to be very vocal. I also I take the history and I connect it to what is going on today. And I show that there's continuity. There's some change, but there's a lot of continuity continuity that the the fabric of history like it's one string and if you pull it it's the same string it's the same thing going on different time same story um last year it was very interesting my son asked me to go and speak to his class his um his class and my son was in kindergarten and uh he's like mom it's black history and i really want you to come and talk to the class and i said okay and his you know his teachers contacted me and i thought i was going to go and talk to just his little class of 20 kids well it ended up being the entire kindergarten kids i think it was like 70 kindergartners and um, I remember, you know, doing the little lecture. I was doing a little PowerPoint, making it kid friendly. I had put Rosa Parks in there, Martin Luther King, you know, just the, the normal stuff. Right. You uh -huh, know, the uh -huh. stuff people know. And I showed it to my son and he said, no. I said, what do you mean? No. He said, I don't want you to teach them this. I want you to teach them the stuff about slavery. I want the slave boats. I want to, I want them to know that the people came from Africa and they were stolen and all this because I teach my kid that. And he said, that's what I want you to teach him. So that's what I did. And I put it in the kids terms. So I went there and I showed this boat, the slave ship. I showed how the slaves were packed. I showed that they came from Africa to America and all those things. And I said, guys, can you imagine being stolen from your parents' house? Just somebody just goes in the house and just takes you and you never see your parents again. And they were like, oh, my God. And then I said, that's what happened in slavery. And then I told the story. But a lot of people say, you know what, it's so hard to teach these kids about complex things that happened in history. And I said, no, it's not. You have to meet them at their level and teach them how they learn. They understood everything. And it was really interesting because I got um, emails from parents and, 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 you know, text messages. And the parents were thanking me. They said, thank you, because the kids were had all these conversations with them behind, about race. And uh, the principals were like, can you come do it for our older classes? Can you go? I was like, look, I got to check my schedule. But <laughs> it was very it was really it was really a good a good thing. You are a true educator. You get it. You get it. You know, when you can break it down to the kindergartner's level yes. and get them to get it, that is awesome. So you mentioned that you have a son. You're a history teacher. You know what America has been through and gone through. You're raising a young man. What keeps you up at night? That keeps me up at night. It keeps me up at night. Just knowing that my child later on in the future, maybe maybe even even now, that he would not come back home if I sent him out. 
you know, that keeps me up at night because he's my only child. He is my heartbeat. I love him to pieces. Um, and I've had conversations with people in our neighborhoods and they mean in my neighborhood, they mean well. I'm in a predominantly Caucasian neighborhood and they mean well. And one of the mothers texted me and said, I ha we had a conversation with our kids and I told them to make sure they protect Brandon, protect your son. And if he's at our house, we'll make sure we drive him home or we'll walk him home and we'll do all these things. And I said, thank you, because I didn't want to kind of get into it and, and getting into it was, you know what? First of all, I, you know, I appreciate what you're trying to do. But your child is not the savior of my black child. My black child should be able to walk in my neighborhood by himself and feel protected because it is his neighborhood. And another thing is just because you know me, my husband and my black child, he is one of the ones that are deemed the good ones. But what about anybody else's kids? What you know, we all are mothers here. And if you see some another black child in the neighborhood that you don't know, are you going to stop and ask them if they need help or if they need a ride or something like that? You know, so I was a little offended by that but um <clears throat> I said you know she, she means well so you know it is what it is but um <laughs> that keeps me up at night another thing that keeps me up at night is mental health issues in the black community the fact that we are so afraid to talk about those things um we are afraid to ask for help um and I see it a lot to being in the college setting that some students really need it um and and they come and they talk to me they're all my kids they come and they talk to me but i can only help them so much because i'm not a professional um and so okay and so it, you know that 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 keeps me up at night i had my own issues with with um with mental health and that just stemmed from me uh from loss and so i share i share it now with anyone who wants to listen you know but i I was married, my husband and I were married for seven years before we had my son, so we thought it was going to be very easy for us to conceive, but it wasn't, but we had my son, and then uh, in 2012, in 2015, I found out I was expecting again, and I was having a little girl. Halfway through my pregnancy, I was 20 weeks along, a little over 20 weeks along, I had the baby, um, and so I was in the hospital for two days, she didn't survive, we ended up, we had to, you know, bury her and do, you know, all this stuff, and we ended up cremating her, and I, I have her ashes with me now. My husband, from time to time, he says, we should put, you know, go and put the bear, the ashes with our grandparents and whatever. But I told him, I'm going to write it in my will. When I die, I want the ashes in my hand <laughs> because she's my heart, you know. But um, so I had, you know, and I, I thought to myself, I could deal with this. I could deal with this. It's not a problem. A year later, I was expecting again. I lost that baby at 12 weeks. Then six months after that, I lost another one at 10 weeks. And I was like, okay, I can deal with this. I'm superwoman. I got this. And it was very difficult. I had to ask for help. So, I, you know, you can only pray so much. Enjoying this episode so far? Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, Anchor, Google, Breaker, Radio Public, or Pocket Casts. Now back to the show. Praying is great. It gives you the strength you need, but sometimes you need to go and seek medical help. And I had to get the antidepressants because I did not know how to cope. Literally, I, while all this was going on, I was working on tenure. 
I was, you know, and it's a gruesome, a hard, hard process to gain tenure in the college setting. You have to be very productive, writing articles. You have to put yourself out there. And I tell you, every time I would get in my car, because I live in Baton Rouge, I drive an hour and 15 minutes to New Orleans. I literally had to compartmentalize and I would switch my brain over to, okay, I'm not Charlene, I'm Dr. Senegal de Queer. And when I would get to Xavier, I was a totally different person. My colleagues, my students, um, no one knew what was going on. They didn't know anything. All they knew was that I was being very productive. Um, I was doing what I, I was handling my business. When I got back in that car and drove to Baton Rouge, the sadness, when I would get to, to Highland Road exit and that sadness was just overcome. It would just overcome me. And I remember just coming in the house and sitting on the sofa and I really couldn't do anything. I just couldn't do anything. Twin sister would call and she's like, you're just different. What's going? She just didn't, she didn't understand because she didn't experience, she hadn't experienced that. And, uh, and I had to go and get help. But um, I think, you know, we need to, as black people, say when we need help and not be afraid to get the help and not think that there's any shame behind it. Because you know what, I'd rather be a whole 100 person than a half of a person because no one is going to benefit from me being half of a person. So that, you know, those things keep me up. One, I'm sorry to hear about your loss. Thank you. Two, thank you for sharing that. You have no idea how important what you just shared is. People need to hear it. The book I'm reading right now, this is what I'm reading right now. I, I don't know if you can see it. It's the Unapologetic Guide to Black Mental Health. How to Navigate an Unequal System, Learn Tools for Emotional Wellness, and Get the Help You Deserve. It's by Dr. Rita Walker. She's a um, professor here in Houston at the University of Houston. But the best advice I was ever given was from my father. He, he hit some hard times when we were in high school. And the, as he was coming out of it, he told me, don't ever be afraid to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And that is the best advice I was ever Fragility is not supposed to be what black people have. We're not supposed to be fragile. We're supposed to be strong. We are supposed to be able to make it through anything. And you, you're a history teacher. You know, mm -hmm. we, we teach yes. about how we have persevered. But that doesn't mean that we don't have moments of weakness. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing that. I truly, truly, truly appreciate that. Oh, okay. absolutely. So we're going to change lanes a little bit. Um, Tell us what you read. What are some, some recommended books? Oh, okay. So right now I am reading uh, Kendi and I have the book right here. It's uh, stamped from the beginning and is the definite history of race, racist ideas in America. So I'm reading that and I'm also reading uh, his second book, it, which is How to Be an Anti-Racist. And Kendi was actually, he's been all over the the media, right? On CNN, on Oprah and all these different things talking about race relations and how a white person can be in a racist and the different steps that they need. And so that's what the book um, is right now. One of the ones that I'm reading. Uh, I often, well, every semester when I teach a certain class, I um, make my students read Harriet 
Washington's book is called Medical Apartheid, uh, The Dark History of the Medical Experimentation of Black Americans. And I do that because large majority of the students at Xavier are biology pre-med majors. And I want them to know that as going into the medical field, this is the reasons why black people are afraid of going to the doctor. It says it all in this book. If you notice, black men, my dad included, don't like to go to the doctor. And, you know, it all stems from experimentations like Tuskegee, uh, the Tuskegee experiment and so on. Those experiments that have been happening to black people. And these experiments went on all the way from slavery time when the, the first the person who came with up with gynecological um, processes for women were experimenting on slave women without anesthesia. And so this book, this book talks about every single thing. It talks about its experimentation of incarcerated black men in jail. I mean, everything. It's amazing. So you should definitely look at that if you're a black person going into the medical field. It'll answer some of your questions about why black people don't like doctors. Um, another one, um, I have a whole bunch of them. The new Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander. I think that was a big one from a couple years back. Mass uh, mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness. Um, I have, uh, let's see, um, Danielle McGuire at the end of the dark street, black women, rape and resistance, a new history of the civil rights movement from Rosa Park to the rise of black power. Um, so I, I have, it's a bunch of books that I have listed on there that I've read and am reading and, um, just all those things I use uh, to create some of my classes. No, that's good because let, let me tell you what I'm doing. I'm actually using the recommended books from my guests to build my book list. Oh. So I actually, I had a couple of Barnes and Noble gift cards. So I got on barnesandnoble.com last night and ordered a couple of books. And there's definitely two or three for sure coming from your list. Love it. Awesome. I love it. I love it. All right. So. What are you listening to? What type of music? <laughs> Y'all gonna laugh at me. Um, and, as, you know, to break the ice in my class, like on the first day, I do um, two truths and a lie, right? And one of them I always put in there is I love country music and the students, and, and that's, you know, that's a truth, um, whatever. And the students always think it's a lie, but I love country music. I don't know. I started listening to country music when my son, uh, was about six or so just because I thought the language and some of the music that I was listening to before was not appropriate and so when I would get in the car I just kind of put it on the country station and I started to like it and so I listened to a lot of country music I love Kane Brown uh Darius Ruckus Luke, Luke Bryan Luke Holmes uh everybody all of them um i also listen to my old school music you know like tevin campbell monica escape you know all of that and then i do like uh megan the stallion i listen to carly b i listen to i'm just all over the place with my music i teach a course called um behind the music the history of hip-hop and social justice and so i teach um about the the old school rap and then the social movements and the music and the messages behind the music and all of that but I'm, I think I'm schooling my, my students, but my students are also schooling me on this new stuff. So I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly listening. I'm a, I, I'll listen to anything. If it's got a good beat, I'm with it. I'm, listen, I'm the same. I'm, I'm personally, I'm biased because I think we grew up in the best era of music. So our old school yes. music, you know, the Isleys and Marvin Gaye. 
Um, we love that. And then, of course, we grew up because our parents were listening to Anita Baker and yes. Luther Vandross. Oh, yes. Um, Big Luther. My, <laughs> my last guest said that his mama said that little Luther couldn't sing. Oh. So she only listened to Big Luther. <laughs> Um, I love that. But yeah, you know, and then that 90s R&B that we grew up mm -hmm. with. Again, I'm a little oh biased, but I, I don't yes. think you can beat that. No, you can't. I don't can't. think you can beat that. Okay, so I know you're not really a big podcast listener, but hopefully you subscribe to the network with Michael Prejean because you've been a guest on it. Okay? I have subscribed. All right, we have two segments left. Two segments left. Okay. Rapid Fire, and then the last segment is called You Didn't Ask. So rapid fire, I'm just going to throw about five questions at you, and you're just going to come right off the dome with an answer. Are you okay. ready? I'm ready. Okay. Question one. If you could have a superpower, what would it be and why? I would like to read people's minds because I just, I always want to know what people are thinking, especially when I'm in class and I'm teaching something. I, I, I like to, 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 to hear what my students are thinking and how they're processing the information. Okay, okay. Now, as a historian, this question is very, very pertinent to you. If you could have any three people, dead or alive, over for dinner, who would they be? Oh, my. Okay, well, dead or alive? I, I want President Obama to come for sure. Um, <laughs> I would like, uh, I think I, I was going to say Martin Luther King, but yeah, 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 I'll take, I'll take, I'll take Martin Luther King. Um, and Frederick Douglass. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Very um, interesting. Yeah. Because you know, it's okay. three guys at three totally different times in history. And I would like to know how from Frederick Douglass, what does he think about, um, how America is today? And, you know, the fact that we're out of slavery, does he think that we have accomplished enough? And then for Martin Luther King, I would like to hear, okay, we have all of these rights now, but they are still being infringed upon. How do you think that the civil rights movement compares to the Black Lives Matter movement? And then President Obama to explain it to them too. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it would be a great conversation. I just would like to listen. That would be a great conversation. I'll sit in the corner. Yeah, me too. I, I, I will sit in the corner. Matter of fact, I'll serve. I'll right. serve. I'll refill water and iced tea or whatever else they're drinking. Because I, exactly. I just need to eavesdrop into that. I need to be part of that. Okay. Easy question right here. Are you a morning or a night person? I am a morning person. I'm a morning person. Um, usually I am up. Most days around 530, I'm hitting the gym at six and my day starts. Okay. Do you, Are you a coffee drinker? I am a coffee drinker. Okay. Yes. So are you like a Starbucks or are you like a home-brewed community coffee type person? I'm a home-brewed community coffee type person. I'm not spending no $7 on no Starbucks coffee when I can make it to my house and it tastes just as good. No. <laughs> I'm cheap like that. <laughs> hey. There's that wine alley right That's there. That's that I wine alley it. right there. Nope, not spending my money on it. Mm -mm. Two more questions. Two more questions. How do you like your steak cooked? I like it medium rare. Um, I used to be a all the way cooked girl, like burnt. And uh, I've slowly over the years decided, you know, I went from medium to medium rare because it's just so good when it, you know, it doesn't need to be cooked all the way. It's just 
juicier. <laughs> so, yes, medium rare. Okay, all right. Last question. If you want a million dollars, what would you buy? Hmm, well... Let me tell you, I don't know if I would certainly, if I would buy anything, but I would completely get myself out of debt. <laughs> so I would buy my freedom from debt. How about that? <laughs> Student loans would be paid off, all of that stuff. And then I think I would, um, actually, I don't think I would buy anything. I think I would save and invest in in the kids, the students. Like at Xavier, it, you know, a lot of kids are first uh, college generation students and they're struggling, their parents are struggling. And, um, I would like to, if they come to my office to be able to write a check and say, I got you, you know, I've done it before from my own purse and pocketbook, you know, students will come in and say, I'm, you know, da, da, da. and yeah, my husband says, Charlene, really, really Charlene, you can't pay everybody college tuition. I'm like, but they needed it. I just, it was just a couple hundred dollars and you know, yeah. So uh, I, I think I'd do that. I'd like to set up some kind of college fund. Interesting. Interesting. I, I tell you what else is interesting, that in 2020, we, we still have first generation college students. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. OK, this last segment. So my older brother told me that you can't give people advice they did not ask for. So just, you know, you can't give unsolicited advice because people don't listen. Mm -hmm. The crazy thing is I didn't ask him for that piece of advice that he was giving me at the time, but it birthed this segment that is called You Didn't Ask. You Didn't Ask. So what unsolicited advice would you like to share for this segment called You Didn't Ask? I have a lot of advice, but I'm going to go ahead and say um, one of them is save your money and pay your bills on time because good credit is really good. And let me tell you why. If you have good credits, the bank will give you their money at a very low interest rate and you can pay it back later. But if you have bad credit, you can't get anything. So save your money. Make sure you pay your bills on time. Um, another one I tell my students all the time is speak and live your truth. Be true to yourself. And um, if you have, you know, be the bearer of your own bones. If you have those bones, those skeletons in your closet, go ahead and bring them out so nobody can use them against you. I mean, hey, <laughs> you could tell the story better than anybody else. So bring them on out. And um, another one is that we are allowed to make mistakes as long as we learn from those mistakes. So the, that that's my you didn't ask. But I tell my students all the time. Yeah. I love it. They didn't ask, but there it is. There it is. Dr. Charlene Senegal de Queer, Wine Alley's finest. I became smarter today just by talking to you. Oh. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Welcome to the network. Yay, I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Yes. And we'll do it again one day. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, After listen, I write my first book. After I write my first book. I'm working on a book project now. So once that is done, you can have me again on here. Bam, there it is. Thank you for blessing me today. I appreciate it, Charlene. Wow. Thank you for joining us this week on The Network. For more information on Dr. Charlene Senegal de Queer, be sure to check the show notes. You can find all of her book recommendations and more there. Also, follow us on Instagram and Facebook, The Network Podcast with Michael Prejean. While you're at it, I'd appreciate it if you go to iTunes, give us a five-star rating, or simply share 
or tell a friend about the show. Every kind gesture moves us in the right direction. Be sure to tune in next week for episode eight with Money Marcus of Castile Financial. He joins the show with one goal in mind to create generational abundance through financial re-education. Subscribe to the network. You may need it.